that boy child of Mary. For 1967, I have chosen a song from the Christmas section of the hymnal. I chose it because I think it has immense symbolic value with regard to the winds of change in the 1960s, particularly with regard to missions and non-Western Christianity, particularly the Global South. The carol was written by Tom Colvin while working as a Church of Scotland missionary in Malawi. This is a song that still to our ears may sound Western, but it shows the beginning of an openness to indigenous lyrical theology. Rather than imposing Christmas through northern eyes, winter chill and dark nights, this song focuses on the naming of Jesus and the meaning of the incarnation, something that is very important in African culture. In the African context, the act of naming recalls the circumstances of one's birth, the season of your birth, the day that you were born on, your place in the family, as well as the hopes for you as a child in the life that lay ahead. Your name charts the course of your life. Today we sing African songs like Siyahamba or Latino songs as we did on Monday, Estas El Dia. The door to this sort of global sharing began to open in the 1960s. Uh, I'm gonna have the ensemble here, um, well, actually, soloists sing. Uh, the ensemble will sing the refrain the first time. You may know it, but just listen to the ensemble sing refrain the first time. And then uh, on stanzas one and three, you'll notice that these are questions. Uh, so I'll have uh, members of the ensemble ask the questions, and then we will answer with stanzas two, four, five, and six. Uh, ensemble, refrain, one, and then we're all in on the refrain, and uh, uh, soloists asking the questions. Let's stand ensemble. You may remain seated.
a song from 1968, number 246, Christ is Alive. The late 60s saw the start of what was later called the hymn explosion. We have sung a folk song and a global song, but there were also many, many hymn writers writing new modern texts that would be sung to traditional hymn tunes. One prolific writer of such hymns is Brian Wren. In fact, he is still at it. These traditional sounding hymns had modern texts that responded to the issues of the day. Brian Wren wrote this text for Easter Sunday in 1968. That Easter Sunday followed close on the heels of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Brian Wren, called on to preach that Easter Sunday, found all the Easter hymns in the hymnal to feel very distant, regally remote from the pain of the here and now. So he composed this new hymn text, Christ is Alive. In our hymnal, it is set to the regal tune of Truro, and this is an appropriate match for our Easter celebrations. But in order to illumine the weariness that a community might bring to Easter, I would like us to sing it to a different tune, O Whaley Whaley, as modified by Hal Hobson. The ensemble will sing the first stanza for you, and please join in singing stanzas two through five. There are five stanzas? Right. Um, I invite you to sing gently. Sing gently as you savor these words. Uh, and this will be the last hymn of our hymn sing, but I also want to call attention to the opening hymn, which will follow the call to worship. And we'll sing it from the Blue Book, from the Psalter. Uh, the music, again, is by Hal Hobson, but the text is by Arlo Duba, who graduated from Princeton Seminary, I want to say in the early 60s. I don't know if anybody graduated. 50s. 50s. Well, Arlo Duba is still kicking. He's, uh, he's back at Princeton for his second retirement, uh, and he often can be seen here in the chapel or in the library. Um, so I wanted to call attention to that song uh, written by a PTS alum. Thank you for your singing. It has been pure joy to praise God with you in song.
How lovely is your dwelling, O Lord of hosts! My soul has a desire and longing for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh rejoice in the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest where she may lay her young by the side of your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Happy are they that dwell in your house. I hope that these few days have been for you not only a time of reunion, but also a time of renewal of your heart and your mind as you now prepare to return to the mission that God has given you to serve. As you are departing, the seminary's board of trustees will be arriving for two days of meetings. And I would like to ask you on your drive home to say a word of prayer for these great servants of the seminary as they seek God's wisdom in offering us leadership. Our sermon today will be provided by 
Dr. William Robinson, who is the chair of the Board of Trustees. I think I'm supposed to say the outgoing chair of the Board of Trustees, as this will be the last meeting that Bill will chair. But I've been living in denial of this, and that's my plan to the end of the week. <laughs> Bill, we are happy to have you bring us God's word. Our prayer of confession comes from Psalm 51, and I invite you to turn to page 51J, page 338 in the blue Psalter. After I've read the opening verses of Psalm 51, please join me in the unison prayer of confession. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. In your great compassion, blot out my offenses. Wash me through and through from my wickedness, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my offenses, and my sin is ever before me. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are justified when you speak and write in your judgment. Indeed, I was born steeped in wickedness, a sinner from my mother's womb. Indeed, you delight in truth deep within me and would have me know wisdom deep within. Let us pray. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, forgive what we have been. Help us amend what we are and direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Is in a position to condemn. Only Christ. And Christ died for us. Christ rose for us. Christ reigns in power for us. Christ prays for us. Anyone who is in Christ is a new The good news of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven.
going to read the text from chapter 23 of 2 Kings in a few moments. So hear now the word of the Lord from 2 Kings chapter 22. But as to the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent, and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. And because you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, says the Lord. Therefore, I will gather you to your ancestors, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. Your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring on this place. So they took that message back to the king. The word of the Lord. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight, for you are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, first, I, as I was sitting here ready to give this sermon, I thought of an incident involving Arnold Palmer, who recently died. About 35 years ago, I was playing in a golf tournament where he was the pro, the celebrity. As I was ready to hit, the head pro came driving up in a golf cart, and he had Arnold Palmer with him, and I'm standing on the tee. So I said, Mr. Palmer, uh, please, because he was going to hit a shot with each foursome. So as I began to step down from the tee, he said, no, go ahead. You hit, I'll hit next. This is how I feel preaching in front of Craig Barnes. And, and I don't feel any better preaching an Old Testament text in front of Professor Dennis Olson, who knows everything about the Old Testament. So bear with my nervousness. I hope this has been a wonderful week for you. Thank you very much for coming. The staff and Brian worked very hard to make this a great time for you. I think it's always interesting when we get a direct line of sight on our own stories. Memories get stirred up, right? And if we're not careful, we're reminded of what really happened and it sort of ruins those memories. I get together every year with four guys that uh, I was in high school with and we played sports and we talk about the good old days and I find the older we get, the better we were. I'm pretty sure our stories have been so embellished that now we are remembering the embellishments. I have no idea what the original story was. So do you remember a couple decades ago when story just became all the rage? Story. Then a, a few years ago, narrative showed up. And now we hear narrative everywhere. I heard narrative yesterday on ESPN. Oh, the Cleveland Browns are going to need a new narrative this year. No, they need a new quarterback this year. <laughs> but I wonder if the popularity of narrative might not be inversely related to the de demise of facts. And, and I'm not saying that that's all bad. It seems like feelings and imagi imagination 
and creativity have been sort of due for a, a revival almost since the Enlightenment, but they seem to be doing very well these days. We've gone from embellishing our stories to creating our narratives, and we've always revised our history. Uh, we do it personally, we do it institutionally, we do it nationally. We've always kind of messed with our memories. Listen to this song from back in the day by Dan Seals. She weren't much to look at, she weren't much to ride. She was missing a window on her passenger side. The floorboard was patched up with paper and tar, but I really was something in my old yellow car. Take a look at me now, throwing money around. I'm paying somebody to drive me downtown. Got a Mercedes-Benz with a TV and bar. God, I wish I was driving my old yellow car. I wish I was driving my old yellow car. No, he doesn't. <laughs> he doesn't miss that old yellow car any more than I miss living on the third floor of Alexander Hall. <laughs> amen. amen. Can I get an amen? So we romanticize those kinds of memories, and I think that's okay. But it's not okay when we romanticize or embellish or revise the parts of our story that really matter. Remembering our past can have the power to enlighten our present and to guide our future. Didn't Jesus show us this in the prayer he gave to the disciples? Forgive us our debts. That's our past. As we forgive our debtors, that's our present enlightened by Christ's forgiveness of our past and lead us not into temptation. That's our future guided by our past forgiveness. Remembering matters. Perhaps that's why Jesus introduced his Eucharist by saying, do this in remembrance of me. So remembering matters because it enlightens our present and guides our future. But it also matters because forgetting matters. Our memories are subject to suppression and denial and blockage, and that is dangerous. We need sturdy memories to guard against the convenient and fanciful manipulations of the past, manipulations that seem to wash over acts of violence and injustice. It's one thing to remember our old yellow car romantically. It's another thing to romanticize our old Kentucky home and all the other homes all over the country where injustice was allowed to flourish. Remembering matters because forgetting matters and some things we are motivated to forget. Listen to the lament of Nobel Peace Prize winner Elie Wiesel as he received the award. Of course we could try to forget the past. Why not? It is not natural for a human being to repress what causes him pain, what causes him shame. Like the body, memory protects its wounds. And that's why we need good, stubborn, accurate history that refuses to let our memories rewrite the past. In this, morning, or this afternoon's scripture, remembering plays a dramatic role in helping the people of Ju Judah learn what it means to be faithful. Shortly before the fall of Israel's southern kingdom, eight-year-old Josiah inherited the throne. Can you imagine? 
an eight-year-old. We have an eight-year-old grandson, and I was, actually his mother should be at the reunion next year. She and her brother are both uh, uh, Princeton grads. So a couple weeks ago, eight-year-old Asher and I are watching a program on the oceans right out of nowhere, and you know this boy, right out of nowhere. He looks at me and says, Poppy, I've changed my beliefs on how the world was created. <laughs> oh, really? I said, uh, so what do you believe? He said, I believe God created nature, and that's all you need to know. Whoa. <laughs> I don't know if I'd make him a king, but I might make him secretary of the interior. You know, that might not happen. Well, Josiah actually did become king at age 16, and then he instituted a series of reforms at age 20. Despite the wickedness of his father and his grandfather, Josiah set out to seek the God of his father, David. Well, you know the rest of the story. One of Josiah's reforms was to restore the temple, which had been neglected for several hundred years. It was in that process a momentous discovery took place. Priest Hilkiah found the lost book of the law. Somehow it had been separated from its keeping place next to the Ark of the Covenant. So Josiah had his royal scribe read him, read him the contents of this lost book. And he was horrified by what he heard. He could not believe the extent to which Israel, Judah, had abandoned the laws of God. Somehow the people had forgotten repressed their own story. Their memories had been erased so thoroughly that even the king was shocked by what he heard. So King Josiah gathered the people and read them their story. They needed to remember a past that could enlighten their present and guide their future. And so do we. Now, it, I think it's good to remember our days at this place. This is the place where we sought to know God, a God both veiled and unveiled. I need to remember this place because just about the time I am ready to explain the God behind the veil, I need to remember the brogue of Professor Hendry who lifted up a God so transcendent that it denied all explanation. And just about the time I want to forget the cost of following the unveiled God in Jesus Christ, I need to remember Professor Metzger teaching on the Sermon on the Mount in such a powerful way. As Paul wrote to Timothy, it is good to remember those from whom we learn the things of God, things that can enlighten our present and guide our future. And that brings me to one more observation about Josiah. When he learned from this newly discovered book of the law that God was going to punish Judah for its decadence, he didn't just rend his robes, although he definitely did that. He uh, sent his servant to the prophetess Hulda to find out if it was too late to repent. He said to his servant, Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book. 
Josiah wanted to know if a revival in Judah would change God's mind, sort of the way it did in Nineveh. Would God have mercy and not scatter the people as Deuteronomy 28 had warned? So here is God's response. Good for you, Josiah. You have humbled yourself, rent your clothes, and wept in my presence. But it's too late. I will bring devastation to your people. Because of your repentance, it will not occur as long as you are living, but it's too late for Judah. And some 25 years later, Judah fell into Babylonian captivity. So what did Josiah do when he found out that no matter what Judah did or didn't do, God's wrath was coming? Listen to 2 Kings 23. Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple, the temple of the Lord with all the people. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. The king stood by the pillar and renewed his covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands with all his heart and with all his soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book. Then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. This is amazing. Too late didn't matter to Josiah. The covenant mattered. Faithfulness mattered. Keeping the promise mattered. On Sunday, a friend of mine gave a commencement address at Gonzaga University, which is where we live. And the address went viral. And you know what the title of his address was? Keep your promises. It was so rare, it seemed to go viral. So what about us? Do we remember our covenants? Do they matter? Do we remember God's covenants? Do they matter? Bonnie Robinson is here, and um, I'm sure she has repressed this from her memory. But in the spring of 1976, I was rummaging through some stuff and found a cassette tape. It was a recording of our wedding ceremony. I was alone in that tiny little apartment, so I thought I'd give it a listen. And I did. And then, like Josiah, I cried. I cried because daily I was failing to remember the sweet vows we made on August 10, 1974. I needed to remember our covenants. When the collective memory of Judah was restored, Josiah chose faithfulness. For him, faithfulness was neither a prepayment for God's blessings to come nor a debt service on God's blessings past. Faithfulness was Josiah's response to remembering a forgotten covenant. Can you imagine today's kings and chiefs of staff remembering and keeping promises to the people? Probably not, but we proclaim Christ's gospel. We must remember. We must be faithful. Well, I hope these few days back on the Princeton campus will help us all be better at remembering. So as you return to your places of ministry, I invite you, remember your calling and be faithful. Remember your baptism and be faithful. Remember your ordination and be faithful. Remember the creeds and be faithful. Remember all your covenants 
and be faithful. And no matter what has been, what is, or what is to come, remember God's covenants and be faithful, for surely God has been faithful to us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord's face shine upon you and give you and our country and our world the fullness of Christ's peace. Amen. And as we leave this place, we hope that you all have enjoyed this time away. We hope that this reunion has been a time of reflection, uh, renewal, and reform. And I'd just like to add to uh, the sermon uh, today and that we remember that he who began a good work in you Amen. will see it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Amen. May the peace of Christ be with you. And also with you. Let us pass the peace of Christ.